Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello and welcome to the show. This is the second of our summer gone fishing new to you <laughs> episodes. We decided to continue the back to school theme with one of my absolute favorites. This is a person that I had wanted to cover for years before mm -hmm. we finally did it. Maria Montessori is very important to my own child education. I'm sure I talk about that a lot in this episode, but she took a new philosophy in education and turned it into a global phenomenon. And I just really thank her. I think she has been the reason that my son is such a open-minded and creative learner. Mm -hmm. I am perhaps a member of a cult <laughs> in that regard. <laughs> but I um, really would like to say thank you to her and thank you to you for understanding about the need for a summer vacation. And we're so thankful for you and your presence in our lives as well. On with the show. And here's your 30-second summary. What did Julia Child, John Cusack, and Frank, Jackie Kennedy, Taylor Swift, Yo-Yo Ma, Beckett Graham, and the founders of Google all have in common? Each of them went to a Montessori school, a child-centered educational system that was founded by Maria Montessori, the first woman doctor in Italy who hoped her efforts with children would one day lead to world peace. The end. Let's talk about Maria Montessori. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1870, construction of the Brooklyn Bridge began and the first section of Atlantic City's boardwalk opened. The modern soda fountain and asphalt were both patented. The donkey was first used as a symbol of the U.S. Democratic Party. The U.S. Army established the National Weather Service. The U.S. government established the Department of Justice. And the final Confederate states were added back into the Union. Compulsory education was first introduced into legislation in England. Charles Dickens, Robert E. Lee, and Alexandra Dumas died. And in 1870, future doctor and education pioneer Maria Montessori began her own early childhood education. Maria Montessori was born on August 31st, 1870 in Chiara Valle, Italy, the only child of Alessandra Montessori and Renilda Stopani Montessori. Maria was born the year before modern Italy was. You know what Italy's shaped like? It's a boot. Kicking a thing. <laughs> Probably the easiest country to pick out on a map of Europe. But it was not always that way. Not always the Italy that we think of. It was a whole bunch of little states. Sicily, Sardinia, Tuscany, the people states, etc., etc. They just kept going on and on. Well, the grand struggle to unify Italy into one country was called the Risorgimento. And over decades of struggle... They were wriggling out from the Austrian boot on their neck, ironically, due to the <laughs> country's shape. That had resulted in the new kingdom of Italy, with Rome as the capital. Maria's father, Alessandro, had been born into a middle-class family just north of Bologna. His father, Nicola, had been middle management at a tobacco company, so he was able to get Alessandro educated. It wasn't rare at the time, especially for men, but it also wasn't mandatory while Alessandra was growing up. 
when he was a teenager, that revolution that Becca was just talking about began and he signed up. He was on the front lines of some of the very earliest battles and was even decorated for his efforts, earning himself a position in the government. He was a clerk. He bounced around in jobs in his 20s like a lot of us do and ended up in the same industry as his father, in the tobacco industry, which was run by the state. It was a government-run industry in Italy. So by his middle age, he was letting the youngins continue the struggle, and he himself was prosperous and handsome, a former revolutionary on the inside, maybe, <laughs> but a model citizen on the outside. Let's call him disciplined and conservative at this point. But wait, there's some kind of rebel lurking within because during one of his work assignments, he met Mama, whose family was landed gentry, but who had been educated within an inch of her life in a time when well over 75% of Italy's population could not even sign a document. And as a woman, that is, <laughs> that's like a unicorn. She had an uncle who was a priest who was notable for his scientific work, his literary work. But of course, in the world at large, there was no real place for an educated woman to flex her muscles or use her talent at all. She was destined for marriage. Haven't we heard that song before on this podcast? Yes, we have. <laughs> but here's the thing. When she met this man, they shared a common I guess value. I don't know what the word is. I hate the word value. What does that even mean? But they were optimistic for the future of their new country. You know, things are changing. Things are getting better. And so Mama and Papa were married. They spent the next four years being an upwardly mobile couple. For Papa's job, they moved around a lot. They went to Venice and then back to Chiara Valle. And four years after they were married, they became united as a family when little Maria was born. So Papa's job transferred them a couple more times. That's what happens to middle management even today. Florence back to Chiara Valle again and then hooray at last off to the grand metropolis of Rome. When Maria was five. So what that means to everyone is more friends, more society, more museums, things to do out of our small town. Hooray. <laughs> well, a lot of the biographies that you read of her say that she moved at 12 because her parents wanted a better education for her. And unfortunately, that's not the case. She was five. She hadn't even begun school yet. And they moved for his job. I mean, yes, it's great to have all those things available to them, including a good education. But that's not the primary reason why they moved to Rome. So Maria went to the local public school at the age of six on the Via de San Nicolo de Tolentino, first grade or the equivalent, kindergarten had been introduced to Italy a couple of years before, but it was considered wildly experimental and not at all common. In fact, the whole educational system in Italy, in, let's call it a giant cock up, <laughs> a giant mess. <laughs> let's go with mess. In 40 years, there'd been over 30 ministers of education. So you know how it is when a new boss comes to your job, right? I mean, there's temporary chaos. For a year, usually. And so in this case, no one was able to settle before the next guy comes on board. The kids were taught by barely literate teachers in enormously crowded classrooms. Most schools didn't even have basic supplies and were taught by rote memorization, uh, maybe reading, writing, and math. 
if you were lucky, children could work at the age of nine. That was the legal age that they could be employed. And a lot of schools only went up to third grade, if you can believe that. And even that was difficult for a lot of families because their kids had been working in the fields. They had been working in factories at a very early age. And suddenly there's compulsory education in Italy and they have to make sacrifices for their families. So even everything, there was nothing that was easy about the school system at all. I know. I guess when you have problems not being able to send your six-year-old to work, there are darker forces. Uh, uh, yes. In most economically. So, um, so yes. So these kids, for the most part, came from very economically disadvantaged backgrounds. Probably not in Maria's neighborhood. Let's just be honest that she came from an upper middle class family. So uh, her compatriots were likely not in that situation. No. And her family life was vastly different. And Rinalda was very much a hands-on Um, She was very liberal. She was an involved parent right from the very beginning of Maria's life. She didn't send her off with, you know, nannies and nursemaids or anything. She wanted to raise her own daughter. So she made sure that Maria did her chores. I mean, at a very, very young age, she had her knitting things for poor people in the community. So Maria always had chores and she willingly did them. That's the part that gets me as a parent. Like, can you imagine your four-year-old going, Oh, I need to scrub the floor today. Let me do all these floor tiles. <laughs> well, okay. Spoiler alert. My child went to Montessori school. So yes, in fact, my four-year-old. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm sorry well, to spoil no, the art no, of your I story. Like, but... <laughs> no, each one of them likes certain things. Like the Swiffer, my my youngest son was big on Swiffering. So the wood floors were always clean. And my <laughs> middle son loved to vacuum. So those floors were always clean. Um, but <laughs> other than that, you know, the things that also needed to be done, they weren't so fast on doing. I mean, they do them now, obviously, but they're so much older. Oh, I was going to say it really fell off at about age 12. Oh, <laughs> okay, okay. That's interesting because that's when mine picked up. <laughs> they like do laundry. They see all of them. If they see laundry in the hamper, they'll do a load. Okay, so... I will not allow people to do laundry in this house, not even the grown-up other people, because I have had too many red tickets. You get red tickets if you can have free dress at school. I have washed red tickets, and that does not end well. I have washed upwards of 30 black Sharpies because the chef coats have a hidden pocket. Oh, (laughs) Uh, You know what? And if I miss them with all my pocket checking... No, nobody does laundry but me. And that is just, and I don't even necessarily care how it's done. I just don't want red streaks on things. That seems like an easy bottom line to have. Just no red streaks, but nevertheless. Anyway. That's funny. So uh, Maria got her first award, not for academics, in first grade for, quote, good behavior. Quiet girls are valued in a crowded classroom. I'm telling you right now. Um, Her second award was for women's work. So they were also taught knitting. She had so much practice at it. So the quality of her needlework. All to say she was maybe not so academic. No. At the time, she wanted to be an actress. That's what she said she wanted to be when she was younger. Okay. And you and I both know Papa would never have allowed that. Oh, no, 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 not at all. But she was also remembered as being very sweet. You know, she was quiet and sweet and she did all her chores. There's one story that is told very often, and I really hope it's true, that her parents were squabbling one day. So Maria dragged a little chair over and stood in between them and put all their hands together, kind of like a family hug to get their parents to stop fighting. (laughs) 
I love that. She, okay, so she may have been sweet in the classroom and, in fact, in the household, but she was definitely the queen bee among her friends. People looked to Maria for, you know, what are we going to play today? And her punishments for the violators of her policies were extreme. She would look at them coldly and say, remind me that I've decided never to speak to you again. (laughs) (laughs) One time, her teacher, and this is a second grade teacher, objected to a defiant look in her eye, like wipe that face off your head, you know, Miss Montessori or whatever. And she never once during the rest of the year looked directly at that teacher again for any reason. (laughs) So as she got older... And encouraged by her mama, she began to take her education more seriously. At fourth grade, girls and boys were split up in classes. So you couldn't go to school with boys anymore as of that age. But she was able to study geometry and science, geography, a little history. There is an irony here in that the teacher had the girls memorize stories of famous women in history. You should all strive for such greatness. Ha! said Maria. I care too much for the children of the future to burden them with one more boring story. (laughs) Ouch. Way to insult our whole deal. You know? And how ironic we're talking about her right now. We're telling that story. That's funny. Yes. Kind of (laughs) meta. I love, though, that about this time, she realized that learning was easy for her and it was easier for her than it was for her classmates. You know, classmates were very upset when they didn't get graduated to the next level. And she's like, why? One classroom is the same as another. It just wasn't hard for her. There was no struggle involved. So that's why it was kind of a cool thing at this point, I imagine, for her mother, who had been encouraging her education her whole life. You know, Rinalda wanted to do more with her education and she couldn't. So to see her little girl suddenly clicking with learning must have been a high. Do want to say, though, it wasn't a dysfunctional situation like we've seen with Louise Brooks, where the mom wants to live vicariously through the child. Oh, right. Oh, yes. I didn't want to say she was a helicopter parent because she was, yes, technically, but in the best way possible. Just super encouraging and making sure that Maria had things that she needed. Yeah. I thought she was a really good parent. Very unusual for the parents that we read about. You know, we read about a lot of dads who let their kids read whatever they wanted. But in this situation, it's Ronaldo that's saying, yes, read everything. It is a lot easier to focus on the child when you only have the one, too. So I'm just saying. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. You know, and I keep debating, like, why was she like this? Was she like this because of who she was or how much of it had to do with her nurturing? She had, had so much privilege and she had parents that let her do things and encouraged her. So, yeah, I, I'm with you. She started to see these examinations that were given at the end of every school year as a personal challenge. And I do think maybe it was an interest in Papa's work. Maybe it's heredity. I don't know. But Maria became all caught up in the study of math, a concept completely foreign to me, but to the point where she took her math book to the theater and studied it by the stage lights one night (laughs) during the performance. Rude, I say, as the child of performers. Huh? (laughs) <laughs> I say, as a person who does not love the mathematics. Oh, yes. And how interesting as a person who's read at her child's sporting events. <laughs> so there are many facets to taking a book to places where you ought to be paying attention. Well, and I did take books to baseball practice, but never to a game. Oh, okay. I have taken them to games, but I just read them like at the downtime because there's a lot of downtime in sports, especially football. (laughs) That's all I'm going to say about that. (laughs) 
Football time is a whole other kind of scale. Oh my gosh, my youngest son just told me he doesn't want to play football anymore. Hooray! I know, the angels are singing. (laughs) So, Papa did not really love the academic daughter situation. Can we not get back to those awards for needlework, please? (laughs) When Maria was about 10, he was um, knighted, I guess I would say. Uh, It's a title that doesn't exist in English, but it it functionally, he was Sir Montessori now. But he had new status in a new country. And what will the neighbors think, kind of? You know, I have a position to maintain. And this sort of unicorn as a daughter is not polishing my halo, kind of. But it didn't come to a head until Maria was 12, when she told her father about her plans for her further education. Most girls honestly stopped going to school at 12. And those that went on really settled on what was called the classical track in education, where you studied a lot of literature, you went into Latin, you went into Greek. And, you know, I'm sure needlework and advanced needlework and needlework three and, you know, and of course, ladylike pursuits of music, etc. Well, Maria decided that she wanted to follow the technical branch of higher education. What you had there was three years of math, bookkeeping, history, science, geometry, geology. It's like modern junior high or middle school. And then you had four years. This is where the technical part comes in of math, science, physics, chemistry, and then what was called modern languages, i.e. things people still spoke, like (laughs) English and French. They were allowed to take technical drawing. A dark cloud emerged over Papa's head. (laughs) (laughs) He was not on board for this plan at all. It was one thing for his daughter to continue her education. It was another to continue down this, you know, male-dominated path. He wanted no part of it. Well, there was no winning over the female pressure at home. Um, no. uh, he, he let her go reluctantly. In the particular track that she took, academics were super important, passing those exams. Failure was not an option at this point, although the learning system was very similar to the younger grades. You know, they had books that they read. They did no work in class. There were lectures. They did any work at home. And then there were these tests where they just, you know, regurgitated the information that they had just memorized. Yes. The master talks. You listen. Sit in your assigned seat. No discussion. There's no theory. Only this syllabus to get through for the test. The test, which is what school is all about. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So Maria was not the only girl there, but the female students were not allowed out at recess lest they be teased or lest they act immodestly. They were also required to have an escort home. Respectable lady persons did not walk unaccompanied in the streets of Rome at all. So junior high was the Regia Scuola Tecnica Michelangelo Buonarotti. And that name, of course, should be famous. That's Michelangelo. But I didn't know his last name until I read the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. I I didn't know it until like two weeks ago. (laughs) Oh, well, I highly recommend this book about two kids. um, They run away from home and they live in the Metropolitan Museum of Art for a week. And I really, really like it. And that's where I learned his last name. So that made me smile just reading that name. But uh, she did great. Absolutely stellar in middle school. Awesome. Then she moved on to the Reggio Technico Leonardo da Vinci. That's high school. Where she horrified her father here at the end by saying she felt inspired to become an engineer like a lot of people at her school, boys at her school. 
both Mama and Papa urged her, please do not take such an unladylike step. Please become a teacher if you have to have a profession. She categorically and ironically, given her future, refused to consider becoming a teacher. Nope. <laughs> How funny is that? All right. All right. Not an engineer, Papa. How about this? I'll be a doctor. Oh, 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 like, <laughs> oh my gosh. So Mama takes to bed with a wet rag on her forehead and Papa, I don't know, starts smoking. I don't know what he does. <laughs> there are no women doctors in Italy. Maria, don't be ridiculous. Okay. Okay. Be an engineer. Too late. Papa, I've made my decision. I'm going to be a doctor. So why did she take this turn from engineering to doctoring? What happened to her? Well, both Beckett and I don't quite understand it, but that's okay because Maria understood it. And it's a story that she it's told a lot about her. One day she was walking down the street. She saw a woman begging and at her feet was her child, just a little toddler. And the woman was asking people for money and food and and just doing, you know, what beggars do. But the child was holding a tiny strip of red paper and he was moving it around in his hands and it held all of his attention. Nothing that was going on in the street could break his concentration on this little piece of paper. And Maria was just watching it and she had an epiphany that I can't connect the dots, but that's okay because she could. And she said, I want to be a doctor. So to me, I don't understand that because that story actually seems to pertain to a later part of her life where that would be applicable to her Montessori method of mm -hmm. education. So to me, I don't even know what this has to do with becoming a doctor. So no. I was all for leaving that story out because I fully didn't understand it. But there you go. There. Well, it's out I there. have another theory, too, that it was put in there that maybe it did happen, but it happened at another point. Oh, and it was put in that particular part of the timeline so that in the future we go, oh, that was one of the steps that she needed to make to get to her end career. Well, and I think there was a giant element of um, since Manic Panic was not available to dye one's hair blue <laughs> <laughs> and the punk rock scene had not yet ramped up to its fullest potential. <laughs> this was a very, very good way to show your defiance. <laughs> And your determination to run your own life. Oh, yeah. That's a valid point. <laughs> maybe I'm cynical. No, you're not. You're actually very unconventional. And maybe you relate to her on that level. Because that like, would have been you, right? Yes. I, uh, I, I approve of you telling me not to do something because now I'm going to do it. Uh, watch this. Well, Maria went to the head of the medical faculty at the University of Rome himself. Why not go to the top? And while their conversation was well-bred and pleasant, and he was perfectly chivalrous, he made it clear that over his own personal dead body, would any female be admitted to his medical school, Miss Montessori? She shook his hand and she promised to be back. She did enroll at the University of Rome because that was open to her as a woman. And she decided she was going to major in physics. Technically, like now, she was going to have to get her undergraduate degree before she went to medical school anyway. So get into the college that she wants to go to medical school, study zoology and botany and physics and chemistry for two years. Take your final exams and earn that degree and then address the next step. So here is where I wish someone would have kept better records of this because against the wishes of the actual head of the medical faculty, Maria Montessori, age 22, was admitted to the medical school at the University of Rome. She is the only woman student 
in that department. Now, how many strings were pulled? Who pulled them? Maria later credited the Pope, Pope Leo XIII. You know what? That's perfectly possible because did we forget? She has a famous uncle, a famous priest uncle who had recently published a work in which he expressed that science and religion were partners, not opponents. And Pope Leo is kind of that guy too. He reopened the Vatican's observatory. And I quote, so that everyone might see that the church is not opposed to true science, but embraces it with the fullest possible devotion. Pope Leo advocated for trade unions, for safe working conditions, for fair wages. A pope like this with a relative like that might be true that the order to let her in came from the top. Like, who else is going to override the boss at the university? But the Mm -hmm. Pope, who is the authority? (laughs) She thought she was going to the highest collar with the head of the school, but oh, no, no, she went above his head. Pope Leo also said that the best occupation for a woman is medicine. So did he say that because Maria had come to him pleading her case? Or is it the other way around? He said it and she said, okay, well, the Pope said it and argued behind closed doors. Or uh, the third thing, oh, what which is, is what people are kind of thinking it was a backdated scenario. She had already become such. And then that was almost like praise. Like, see, this must be the best profession for a woman. <laughs> Look how well it worked out. So there it is. It is nothing but a tantalizing question mark. However, it does have some basis. It's not as far-fetched as if I said I called the Pope. She actually did have some street cred connections, you know. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> That's out there. So things were tough for the new student. Not so much from the teachers, exactly, who might have been told by the Pope to let her in (laughs) and and therefore were out of that business of um, objecting. But her fellow students were horrible. (laughs) That's a nice way to put it. I mean, they were basically irritated that a woman had infiltrated their boys club. And part of me is thinking they're thinking, oh, my gosh, what if she does better than me? Just like earlier, Papa had to walk her to all of her classes. She was a single woman. She could not be walking the streets by herself. So he had to bring her to school every day. However, he stopped speaking to her. So I'll walk you, but I'm not authorizing this by humor or whatever. He was he was so seethingly angry about this whole thing. I mean, really, I guess 10 points for walking her to class because he could have easily said, I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. And then what? Like, what would she have done? She probably would have just asked someone else to walk her. Yeah. But, you know. <laughs> would have got the Pope to walk her. Maybe the bishop. <laughs> <laughs> she would have got the Pope to walk her. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine? Yes. Actually. Man, yeah, me too. That would actually take a long time. I think people would have things to ask or say to the Pope. She might have to budget more time for the commute. Yeah, but just like the first few times, because after a while, it would just become commonplace. There's the is Pope it walking. commonplace to see the Pope walking down your street? I just don't know. It is the first two weeks after that. It's like, oh, hey, how's it going? Hey, Leo, what's up? Sad. <laughs> well, so her fellow students were quite horrible to her. Um, so she gets to school. They were constantly saying things under their breaths. You know, that's one thing. And she would always either pretend she didn't hear them or respond back in a ladylike manner that like, you know, I'm rubber, your glue speaks to me, <laughs> bounces off you or whatever the thing is. And she was not allowed to go into class with everyone else. She had to wait in the hallway till everyone was seated. Not out of second classness necessarily, but because it was considered unseemly for a woman to be 
even accidentally, jostled around by menfolk on their way into the classroom. So she had to wait and then take her seat in a calm way. But the students often made sure there wasn't an empty seat for her. Yeah, they took pains to do that. Not cool. They would catcall and they would whistle at her because she was a woman amongst their mix and won't this make her feel really uncomfortable. And one day they whistled at her and she just stopped and she turned around and she smiled at the guy and she said, the harder you blow, the higher I go. So it was her mother's support and encouragement that got her through, I think, and also her natural ambition and a desire to prove people wrong. But there was another challenge ahead when it came time for anatomy class. And this is not unique to lady persons. It is not unique to her time and place. There are many forums talking about how to get through anatomy class, how to deal with the psychological ramifications of walking into a room full of cadavers. It's amazing the rabbit hole I fell down. There's support groups and everything. Well, in this time, Maria's time, they had to kind of come up with a plan on the fly because this has never happened before, but they decided it was unseemly, again, for the men's students to look at nude bodies in the presence of a woman. I mean, honestly, if you can't even go to fourth grade with a girl, <laughs> you know, yeah. I can see how the society would be like this. They, the male students, did their dissection together in the light of day during regular class time. But Maria had to come in after hours and spend her time alone in a room full of skeletons, full of jars labeled with murderers titles, you know, their brains in a jar. Why is the murderer like this? Let's examine his brain. And, and just row after row of partially dissected human beings. Her first experience with anatomy class nearly made her quit altogether. She had a crisis. She wrote all about how these were once people like myself. And she had a hard time from being so sheltered from anything unpleasant her whole life. Let's jump in the deep end. The scene from every haunted hospital video game on earth. <laughs> Unlike her male co-students... There were no jokes. There's nobody to talk to about this. There's certainly no internet forums. And she had such a nervous breakdown when she got home that even Mama, her strongest supporter in this whole endeavor, advised her to quit medical school. Maria was composing her resignation letter in her head. I mean, even during her classes in botany, they never brought a leaf into the classroom. It was leaves in books. So Certainly, she'd never been exposed to insides of human bodies. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a jump from the theoretical to the practical, and <laughs> it's a yeah. big jump. Well, her first hands-on experiences are hands in somebody's body. Yeah, that's got to be traumatizing. So she really struggled to overcome this part of her medical training. And I am astonished at the failure of my own memory here. I swear to you, though I couldn't tell you who it was, that once before in the history of this show, the History Chicks podcast, we encountered a woman who went to medical school, encountered anatomy class, and left and went on to some completely other career. And I thought it was Belva Lockwood, but I can't for the life of me figure out who it is. And it's driving me insane. So if anyone is listening out of order or goes back to the Wayback Machine and encounters that, I would appreciate a note because I honestly have been digging and digging and can't figure out who that is. Yeah. I, you asked me and I had I don't even have any recollection of it. So, But you're asking the right people because if anybody remembers, it's somebody who's listening right now. Maria changed her mind. She thought about it. She tried to think of solutions and she hired a man to come be with her in the anatomy lab 
So she'd have company. She wouldn't be all alone. And part of his job description was that he was to smoke constantly, lighting one from the other and to blow the smoke right in her face to mask the smell in the room. Like, that is a very interesting job description, I guess. (laughs) Whatever works. You know what? It's brilliant problem solving. And I have to wonder how much Rinalda had a part of that, because that was kind of one of the things she was doing now. She was really team Maria. She felt that she was part of the process. Maria would come home from school and give her lectures on what she learned. And Rinalda would help her with learning techniques and study techniques. And one time there was this huge textbook. It was too heavy to carry around all the time. So Rinalda said, well, why don't we just chop it up? into sections. You carry around that section until you're done with it, then take the next one. And at the end of the year, we'll get the whole book rebound. That's brilliant. Just like having the guy blow smoke in her face. That's extreme. Well, she never told the faculty about any of these accommodations that she had made for herself. She just became known for her fortitude. So fake as it was, that's the original fake it till you make it. <laughs> um, keep it all inside. Don't let them see your weakness. But, you know, she's handling her business in a very unusual way. This medical school at the time was very interested in processing young men through their program. I guess I... I would stop short of calling it a diploma mill, exactly, but they they were very interested in checking off the boxes. The students, for the most part, wanted the status of the title dottore. They wanted the gentleman C. We've seen that before, too. Let's just skate, and most of the time we'll just be partying and hanging out in coffee houses with our friends, etc. But here was this woman student who came to every class, who asked questions, who paid attention in lectures who is actually trying to educate herself despite everything. Now, if you're a professor and every time you look up, you see this one person making notes and listening to everything you say and nodding and then asking an intelligent question. And then you have this other guy who you saw the first day (laughs) and you saw on test day and between the two. And also he gets a 69 or 71 in your class. He like squeaks it. Mm -hmm. Who are you going to like better? Who are you going to talk about in the staff room? Oh, yeah. And I can't help but imagine that that didn't bode well for them liking Maria at all, the students. That's just that's just one more reason not to like her. Well, they cannot like her all they want because Maria won a prestigious academic prize that came with a very generous scholarship out of all the students. And she didn't get it because she was a woman. She got it because she was a very good student, the best in the business, you know, very Mm -hmm. diligent. And she ended up making enough money also tutoring. I'm guessing she tutored young girls. I can't imagine her father would let her tutor fellow students. No. Well, and would she tutor these guys that were, you know, mocking her all day? Would they even ask? I don't think so. Well, Papa had this whole other category of things to disapprove of (laughs) because she was making money and she won a position as an assistant at a hospital. Another very, very rare coveted thing. to It's like an internship. But to get practical experience before you were qualified, that is incomparable. That is very valuable to your future as a doctor. If that's your goal is to practice medicine and Mm -hmm. not just to walk into cocktail parties with the name of doctor. What's his name? Well, during her last two years of medical school, she worked at four different hospitals. I just don't know how she has the time, (laughs) including a psychiatric one and a children's hospital, which will break your heart every time. Not only was she busting all these glass ceilings, but she was doing it in a very feminine way. 
She wasn't one of those students who just, you know, let her looks go and let her hair down, which is fine. But it was important to her to always look nice. So these guys are going to class with this beautiful woman who's always well put together, who's very polite, who wouldn't let them walk behind her up the stairs. She's just very well mannered, which I'm sure must have made her father happy. And I think it was just part of her personality, too. You know, she wouldn't have thought to be any other way. I am reminded of Florence Nightingale, who under the surface was just raging, ambitious person. But on the outside, paid calls, went to the dressmaker, this and that. And you know what? We had the same conversation when we talked about Lillian Gilbreth, the mother from Cheaper by the Dozen, who (laughs) they said in the paper, even though the bride has advanced degrees, she is nevertheless an attractive young woman. It's just shocking to me how these two things don't seem to be able to coexist in people's minds. And it's mm-hmm. like blowing their minds the whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's really the only reason that I'm bringing it up because you can dress however you want to go to class. I wear pajamas quite often. <laughs> so, Well, that is where I draw the line. <laughs> they were cute. They were, and I rolled up the <laughs> sleeves. I like made them look cute. I swear. <laughs> they were like men's pajamas. So they matched. <sighs> it was the 80s. You could do stuff like that. Just throw on a bunch of O-ring bracelets and... You're golden. No, no. <laughs> maybe I'm maybe, wrong. Maybe this is how I rebelled. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we all need to at some point. At the end of one's medical training in Italy, uh, the students had kind of like a speech day where you exhibit your knowledge by giving a speech on a topic, you know, of your choosing. And Maria was particularly nervous, of course. All eyes were upon her. So there's the public speaking element, but then there's the antagonistic nature of her fellow students. She said when she walked on that stage, she felt, and this is an interesting concept, like a lion tamer, which seems like a position of power to me. Like, she thought, okay, I now have the job of winning everyone in this audience over. She didn't get up there thinking, okay, I just have to duck and dodge and hope that it, you know, no, she got up there with the intention of running that room. So Papa, so the legend goes, had no intention of coming to speech day. He didn't even know about it until somebody told him. So that's how the story goes. But an acquaintance, oh, I'm so happy to see you. Let's walk together. Like, together to what? This is, again, how the story goes. It's very heightened. He goes and stands in the back, and his daughter gives her speech, where she is a lion tamer, and receives a standing ovation. And when this acquaintance pointed out, this is my friend, that's his daughter, everyone came up to congratulate him. Congratulate him. (laughs) Yeah, Papa was bewildered and sort of impressed against his will. And so, after... She defended her dissertation on July 10th, 1896. At the age of 25, Maria Montessori was awarded her degree as Doctor of Medicine, though many of the words on her diploma had to be changed to reflect feminine pronouns and nouns. For the first time ever in Italy, that's the problem when everything in your language has a gender. (laughs) You got to do a lot more editing than he slash she. So she is the only woman doctor in Italy. Maria Montessori became quite the celebrity. Maria wrote to one of her friends, 
everybody looks at me and follows me as if I were a famous personality. My celebrity derives from this fact. I look delicate and I look shy and it's known that I look at corpses and touch them, that I look at naked bodies without fainting, that nothing shakes me, that I'm indifferent and so cold-blooded that the very examiners are disconcerted. So here I am, famous. On the other hand, my dear, it's not very difficult. I'm not famous because of my skill. I'm not famous because of my intelligence, but for my courage and my indifference toward everything. This is something which one can always achieve, but it does take tremendous effort. The new famous Dr. Montessori was the natural choice to represent Italy in an international women's conference to be held in Berlin. Much was made, similar to what happened in Italy, of the contrast between her outward appearance and her intellect. Reporters kept harping on how feminine she was. Not at all what one would expect from such a monster as this. You know, (laughs) thank you, question mark. She had one reporter who interviewed her in Rome before she even went who was really shocked that he found someone who was friendly and feminine. He said, quote, the delicacy of a talented young woman combined with the strength of a man, an ideal one doesn't meet every day. (laughs) So you remember when we were talking about Annie Londonderry and how people in France thought that a woman in pants was not a woman at all with some kind of third species, you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It seems like it's just like something they cannot overcome. They expect her to act more like a man if she's going to have a brain like that. So there is the undercurrent of what is going on. But there's also pride. The town that she had been born in, Caravale, they went around and collected for her to get her. Well, it was only 50 lira, which isn't very much like 100 bucks. But that doesn't matter. They went around and collected from the village because they wanted to help send their daughter to Berlin and onto this international stage. How sweet is that? Well, I'm glad that society as a whole is catching up, you know? Yeah, yeah, no kidding. She was at the conference, and before the main event, there was a counter-protest. There were some lower-class women protesting outside about the injustice that these middle-class and upper-class women were agitating for their rights, but seemed to have forgotten their needs. It's not just for the upper-class. There was a need for solidarity among all classes of women. And Maria Montessori agreed. She volunteered to go out and speak to these women and calm the waters. And she spread a message of action and I guess filled everybody with hope. There was applause. There was acclaim on both things. She gave the official speech she gave and the impromptu speech she gave outside. And even the official speech, she didn't really have notes. She was just winging it. She was holding paper to give the illusion that she had this all organized, but she was charming the crowd. She was winning them over and she was just speaking. In the uh, newspaper, here was a story. Everyone was amazed. 
This physician surgeon graces the speaker's podium as if it were a box at the theater. And all the large questions she talks about, the emancipation of the peasant and factory women, the economic and legal rights of married women, are discussed in a Roman accent that sounds like music. Suddenly one wishes there were a hundred thousand such physician surgeons. <laughs> so serious things were discussed at this conference. Equal pay for equal work was a big one. Educational opportunities for women. Relief work, children's issues, of course, and world peace, which has been a perennial and remains to be an issue. Also in the paper, the appearance of the young Dottoressa Montessori overcame the sarcasm of the gentlemen present and made them smile with pleasure. You know, we can be forgiven, can't we, for rolling our eyes a little bit. Not at Maria Montessori, of course, who cannot help her face and its attractiveness, but the press latching on to the wrong aspect of a genuine contributor, turning her into some kind of celebrity spokesmodel is kind of how she was viewed. So she was getting all this press, which... That's great, right? No, she was absolutely furious. She had gone up there. She had done serious work and talked about serious issues. And the takeaway of all these people was that she was pretty. She said, quote, my face will not appear in the newspapers anymore and no one will dare to sing of my so-called charms. Again, I shall do serious work. <laughs> Good. Yeah, Good. no kidding. In addition to her hospital work, and Dr. Montessori had a private practice because what was one going to do with one's spare time? She was notable for sort of the global approach. So she could prescribe, yes, diagnose, but also tuck in, <laughs> listen, maybe make you some soup. Her patients felt that she really cared. She felt like part of the family, kind of. It's it's hard to explain. And her fellow doctors kept asking her, why are you demeaning yourself with all this manual labor? After all of your hard work and all the struggles you've been through, you're making soup for people now? Why go back to women's work? And she had a good point. This is human's work, all of it. And you know, counter to me stopping, how about boys starting? Maybe boys should be trained in this aspect as well. Oh, that's radical. <laughs> no kidding. You know, she reminded me a lot of Marmy and Beth at this. You know, she went to the houses of these very poor people. There's one instance, it was a mother who had just given birth to twins. And instead of just coming in and doing doctor stuff, she took care of the babies while the mother was recuperating and getting her strength back. She made sure that those babies were healthy before she left. Didn't that happen in Little Women? They went to the poor, the house of the poor people. But the Hummels. That's it. Thank you. Thank you. I'm like, this uh, house. <laughs> now, um, I will say, maybe that's not a good reference because Beth did pay the ultimate price. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> for going to the Hummel's house, but um, and taking care of that baby. What's the opposite of uplifting? Down, pushing example of charity. Well, Maria Montessori became interested in children that she had been introduced to during her visits to some Roman asylums. Idiots is what they were called in the language of the day, which we certainly would not use today. They were shut away like animals and they were given no training or guidance at all. And little kids that were slightly above the mental capacities of these children were simply set free onto the streets to live or die as they could, usually with a life of crime and not a very long life at that. So she studied them and observed their behavior and kind of uh, something started to tick in the back of her mind. What to do? What to do? And why are doctors in charge of these children and not 
For example, teachers. Why is no one trying to make them into members of society? Everyone's just given up. She saw the way that the children were acting and the ideas started forming in her head. At one point, the staff is like, their lunch is over. But what do they do immediately? They drop to the floor to eat the crumbs off the floor. And Maria's looking at them going, no, they're not eating the crumbs. They're playing with them. They have absolutely no stimulation in this environment at all. She's starting to think like a teacher. So in classic Maria Montessori fashion, and since the internet had not yet been invented, she began to read everything she could get hold of about education throughout history to see if anything struck her, to see if any dots would connect themselves with what she had been observing, particularly the following. There was a man named Edouard Seguin who divided learning into stages also made apparatuses to encourage learning and experimentation. Have any of you ever had a doll called a dressy Bessie doll? (laughs) If not, I'll provide you a picture. But it was a doll that had a zipper and buttons and snaps and you could tie her shoe. And I think there was a boy version too, but I don't know its name. You can thank him for things like that. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the philosopher who thought that the job of a teacher is simply to unlock the ability of the child that already exists naturally within them. Oh, wrote that down in her notebook. Johann Pestalozzi, who said that complicated tasks should be broken down to their bare elements and a child should learn how to do the beginning stages and then they will naturally build upon themselves. Like writing, for example, starts with recognizing a line, with drawing on a paper, you know, then you just can move on from there. And last but not least, a man whose work has directly affected most of us. Friedrich Froebel, whose philosophy of play-based learning and the natural unfolding of the human intellect came together in his much-admired Kleinkinderbeschaftigungsanstalt. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Um, I'm so glad you you said that instead of me because I have have it spelled out phonetically and that's not even close. (laughs) So does that sound familiar to anyone? Well, if you were born in the United States after about 1974, the chances are that you likely attended the school that he rebranded kindergarten. I think it was better for the postcards, you know. Was it really 74? Because I went to kindergarten before 74. Correct. 1974 (laughs) was when most of the states in the United States provided funding for a universal kindergarten and when it kind of went from a more rare occurrence Mm -hmm. to you're almost expected to have gone to kindergarten. I lived in a very progressive state. It was in the elementary school. It was the first thing you did. Then you went to the class next door. First grade. Correct. But I'm just saying as of 1974 was when it all tipped so that the expectation was that you would have gone. Right. I only went for a few months and then got promoted to first grade. But that's because I went to Montessori preschool. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, all the study of educational methods and the children convinced her that the children she was observing in the asylums could be helped with the proper attention. You know, society viewed them as potential criminals. So pre-locked them up. And so what chance did they ever have? And the key time to get a hold of these children and change their pathway was when they were very, very young, ideally between, say, two and six. And she began to publish articles and give speeches about the need to intervene in the children's development early. The education of the senses was important to her. Then education of the mind. We have to start 
at the fundamentals. It was for the good of the entire society, she said. It's 65,000 children across the country that we can change the course of their lives. Not only that, it's crime prevention for the future. We're elevating humanity. We're elevating our country and bringing ourselves into the future. Oh, she became the face and the voice of a movement. Just people latched onto this upper class, wanted to fund it. Programs were set up to train teachers. Articles appeared in medical journals and educational journals and the popular press got a hold of it too. While she's doing this, she's still working at a hospital and she still has her private practice. So she's doing all of it. Do you think if she had had a smartphone, she would get as much done? I actually have been wondering about that. Like how much has productivity suffered because of the smartphone? You would think it would be a benefit, but but like the number of times you play, it's not Candy Crush for me anymore, but you know, whatever it is. Uh-huh. <laughs> my Harry Potter game. No, I have no games on my phone, but I still check Twitter, you know, every couple hours at least. I've gotten very good about ignoring social media. Yes. Um, <laughs> I can speak from experience and say, yes, you have. <laughs> Which is fine. You should. You have a lot of stuff to do. You're like Maria. You've got a lot of things on your plate right now. (laughs) So she went on a lecture tour as the proponent of special education. She was much appreciated and praised just like before about that subject, but also as a lightning rod for the rights of women. Oh, the speech she gave. I love this. I just want to read you a little bit of one of the speeches that she gave, kind of talking about us, you and I. And all of the women listening, the woman of the future will have equal rights as well as equal duties. She'll have a new self-awareness. Family life as we know it may change, but it is absurd to think that feminism will destroy maternal feelings. The new woman will marry and have children out of choice, not because matrimony and maternity are imposed upon her. Aha. She will exercise control over the health and well-being of the next generation and inaugurate a reign of peace. Because when she can speak knowledgeably in the name of her children and in behalf of her own rights, men will have to listen to her. Women in the audience, my friends, literally screamed out loud as if she were the Beatles. Yes. Another radical viewpoint that she proposed, we've had hospitals since the Middle Ages. Once you're sick, they attempt to cure you, thus the existence of doctors. But how much better is an ounce of prevention? The poor, if you give them nutrition and shelter and access to education, maybe they wouldn't fill our jails. Maybe they wouldn't fill our streets. It's time to use common sense. So Her message of social reform should sound familiar to those of you who perhaps listen to our Jane Addams podcast. This is the time all over the world that educated women were raising their heads and starting to realize, oh, this maternal nature that you have placed as a mantle upon our shoulders can be used to transform our societies. So she's in the zeitgeist of the moment here with all um, all these feelings and all of these speeches that she's given. Because she was such a public figure and getting so famous and speaking everywhere. When she was in London giving a talk, she was presented to Queen Victoria herself. That's the level of fame that this woman has hit already because of these radical ideas. Her philosophies became topics of discussion at dinner tables and professional association meetings all over Europe. It's amazing how far her reach is. So it was time to put her ideas into practice. Put your money 
where your mouth is time. She took a position as co-director of the orthophrenic school with another doctor, Giuseppe Montesano. He was a psychologist. So it was a training school for teachers. She had 64 teachers to teach. Well, what did you need? You needed a lab. You needed practical experience. And so a school for children was opened inside of the training institute. Um, Kind of the test subjects. 22 children. Financially, physically, mentally challenged children who had been put in asylums. After only one term, the progress the children had made was mind-boggling to the officials who had come to do an inspection. Not only that, but the teachers themselves were examined by a strict board of examiners made up of noted scientists, educators, government officials. And not only were all the teachers found to be up to standard, which is just like, we know the history of education in Italy. Huh. Interesting that that happened already. After only one term, most of them received honors on top of just passing. The quote, experiment was deemed a giant success. And the usual tidal wave of good press followed seen through the prism of her fabulous looks <laughs> and personable nature. I, we're not getting away from that. I know she was putting her foot down and saying, they're never going to talk about it. That's just like your MO, my friend. Use what you got. <laughs> On her 30th birthday, all this happened before she was 30, everyone. Um, you know, please fan yourself. Don't feel unaccomplished. She's a special case <laughs> um, for getting stuff done. But Papa gave her a gift, a a gift from his heart, as well as from his own personal workshop, a big leather-bound scrapbook of all her press clippings from around the world. There was a handwritten index in his careful writing and table of contents, and he wrote her a letter. My dear, a pile of newspapers has accumulated in our house over these last years, thanks to some of your many friends and admirers. These newspapers contain souvenirs, which are as dear to me as to you, because they demonstrate your genius and record your activities. But if they were kept in a disorderly way, they might not have been preserved. I decided to collect these souvenirs in a volume and present it to you on the occasion of your 30th birthday with hope that you will look through it with pleasure. Your Papa. Oh. So it just might be a way for him to ask for her forgiveness, don't you think? I think their relationship really took a turn when she graduated and became a doctor after he had seen her give her presentation. But something like this, what a touching gift. He had to be collecting this all this time, all those clippings and putting them together for her. If, if her heart was at all hardened still, I think that would have softened it completely. I have to tell you, as someone whose mother, through her whole adult life, anytime my mother found something in a magazine and she subscribed to them all um, <laughs> that appealed, she thought, to one of her children, she kept these envelopes and she would cut them out with a little scissor and put them in an envelope and she would send them to us. Um, or next time she saw us, she'd hand us this big fat envelope full of clippings. And aside from the articles themselves, which typically were something we were interested in, the fact that it kind of proves that she was constantly thinking about us. And maybe that's what this notebook did for Maria Montessori too. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So for two more years, alongside her colleague, Dr. Montesano, she worked at the orthophrenic school, refining some of the Montessori classic materials that we use today. In fact, we'll talk about those later. These new materials and the teaching methods that she was doing worked so well that these children who previously had been considered um, trash. 
<laughs> discard. I mean, discarded. Yeah, they that they, they had no promise at all that they were going to just be you know test subjects as far as everybody but Maria was concerned. These children scored better on standardized tests than typical children in the public school system at the time. That's how effective these methods were. Some of these children were mainstreamed into regular classrooms. That is a result no one ever thought would be possible. And then, suddenly, at the height of her success, she left the Institute. And the question is why? Okay, so here's where history draws a little veil over some timing. So we're just going to lay it out because no one knows. (laughs) And everyone that does know is no longer with us. So Maria Montessori and her fellow director, Giuseppe Montesano, had a personal relationship as well as a professional one. It was so personal that Maria gave birth to a little boy they named Mario. Either she gave birth to him right now when she so abruptly vanished for a little while, or she had given birth to him a couple years earlier when she was 27. No matter which that is, it had to be a giant secret. This is a career-ending scenario. Not, you guessed it, for Dr. Giuseppe Montesano. Wouldn't have been a career-ending scenario, but for Maria Montessori. But you know what else is a career-ending scenario? Getting married. Talk about a rock and a hard place. There was talk that perhaps his mother did not want him to marry her. I, You know, I don't know. Who's to say? (laughs) I'm just sort of confused by the timing of this because if she had the baby when she was 27, you know what she was doing is the, you know, the four hospitals, the private practice, she was observing the children. There was a lot going on. How is she keeping it a secret? This is that year after she graduated. You know, she has a private practice. She's famous. Everyone's looking at her. So the sudden vanishing at 31 makes more sense to me. They often explain this away by saying this is when the faithless Dr. Montesano married someone else, because that is what he did, marry someone else. And in her distress, she left. Um, So the timeline is wobbly, but the birth date of baby Mario Montesano Montessori, that's a mouthful, is officially in March of 1898. So I guess we're going to go with she was 27 and... It was cold weather and there were voluminous sweaters. <laughs> so I don't understand. Maybe she's one of those women that were so tiny that they didn't look pregnant till the end. She's still doing speeches. I mean, she's not like quietly off, you know, treating a few patients in their homes. She's in front of the public eye. If when she's 27, now she does disappear for a period of months away from the Orthophrenic Institute when she was 31, a little Mm -hmm. later. So that to me, if one were going to hide a pregnancy, how do you know that you're not going to show? You don't. So Mm -hmm. you can't rely on that. So anyway, it doesn't even 100% matter of the timing. I just want to let you know that you encounter both of those stories. And the fact that she left abruptly is still a mystery to people. So there you go. So no matter the timeline, no matter his actual birth date or the circumstances of her distress and disappearance, we can move on with what happened afterward. What we do know is that Mario, whenever he was born, was sent off to live with another family out in the country. It was not acknowledged that he was her son. And he just had this mysterious, beautiful aunt that would come and visit him frequently. Then that would be Maria. But nobody knew about the child. And if they knew, they weren't talking. 
I think her parents knew. I think her parents knew too. And I wonder how much Rinalda influenced this decision. She knew that this was going to stop Maria's career, just like hers had been stopped. So did Rinalda say, no, no, put him in the country. Keep on with your career. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. I don't know. So whichever crisis it was, the birth of her child or the betrayal of her lover, Maria went through a major change just about now. She certainly did not go back to the Institute. That's for dang sure, where the father of her child was now a married man. That's awkward. Even if you were going to remain friends, that's awkward. I know. And they were not. No, there is a um, I'm going to go with a myth out there that they'd made a marriage pact that neither would ever get married. And then he betrayed her even more by getting married. Well, I, you know, it's all speculation. We weren't there. Nobody knows what happens inside of a relationship. So um, anyway, so there's a little turbulent water. And one thing that came out of it is she functionally abandoned her medical career, although she did serve with the Italian Red Cross, uh, which I thought was good, and kept up with her private practice somewhat. She did give up her hospital work and this and that. So a thought had been percolating in her mind. If my poor little idiots, her words, not mine, again, nomenclature of the time, can be so improved by my methods, how much could I change the outcomes for other children? Kids that we ourselves in 2019, oh, it's 2020. (laughs) Wow. I haven't even done that yet. Good job. Well, kids we would currently call neurotypical, I guess, is Mm -hmm. what we would call them. Um, How much could these affect their minds if she could do so much with people who were thought not to be educatable. And so she went back to college, back to study psychology and education and anthropology, which is weird. I have to tell you, it reminds me a lot of phrenology. Those That thought that bumps on your head indicate your personality. Mm-hmm. It's the study of, say, the size of your features um, indicate aspects of your personality. Like, why are you a criminal? Because you have a Neanderthal brow or whatever. Ah. Um, yeah, it's debunked, debunked, debunked. But criminology was in its infancy and this was a large part of that. So it's not anthropology as you or I might study it. And it has largely been dismissed. But there you have it. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, all of that aside, she felt a wave of something, some kind of fire that took over her mind. A great faith animated me. It's as if I were preparing myself for an unknown mission. And we know, looking back from here, what that mission was, but she doesn't. She began to study children in regular schools the way that she had studied the children in this asylum systematically with charts and notes to identify methods to improve their education, where the school system and the way that they are treating the children is failing them, is not matching with their natural inclinations. And at 34, Maria was offered a teaching position at the University of Rome to ideally lay a foundation for a far-reaching reform in the Italian school system. For four years as a professor, Maria Montessori exemplified a major principle of her own philosophy, even though she taught anthropology and we have been very clear about (laughs) what we think about, (laughs) about that. She made her material interesting and then the students wanted to learn it. 
Whoa. <laughs> it's our philosophy as well. That is why we talk about history like this. It's our philosophy at work. So people fought to be in her classes. They didn't skive off for the gentleman's C in her classes. Here's a quote from a student. <laughs> Note the opening sentence, which we cannot escape. She was a most attractive lecturer. <laughs> her language was so simple, so clear. Her delivery so animated that even the poorer students could understand her. All that she had said had the warmth of life. I remember some students saying her lectures make us want to be good people. Man, if that's all you get across, then I'd say you're doing good, no matter what the subject. Yeah, without unpacking all the things that he managed to insult in that. Even the poor students got it. Oh, okay. At 36, she received a, another degree in this time, education and anthropology. So just as Maria Montessori, the busiest person we have ever covered, <laughs> by the way, <laughs> was looking for a new challenge for some reason. Maybe she had those extra 17 seconds every minute that she needed to use. <laughs> Along came some friend of a friend's, friends of a friend, that's what I was looking for, with a question for her. They're rich businessmen, they're these developers, and they have just remodeled a very dangerous area of Rome. Like... To the point where, just like uh, with Wilma Mankiller, like the emergency services would not set foot in this section mm -hmm. of the town. That's how bad it was. Uh, they had remodeled it into low-income housing. It was called San Lorenzo. And it was supposed to be the new model, um, I guess, the projects, you know, the first iteration of the projects. The challenge is... They had filled this place with married couples, with kids. They're playing the odds for the most respectable tenants is what they're doing <laughs> for themselves. But at that income level, the mothers all went out to work. And hmm, well, compulsory education only covered kids from 7 to 12. At least it's higher than 9. It was just this year. It was 1904 where I went up to 12. So from 7 to 12, you had to be at school. And families could find caretakers for the babies or the mothers didn't go back to work yet. But what these buildings were left with were these baby gangs and i've said it before <laughs> but literally these groups of two to sixes maybe three to sixes were roaming the buildings wreaking their innocent yet destructive havoc on the buildings while people were gone they're pooping on the stairs they're drawing on the walls they're breaking the windows not out of badness but because they made a funny sound or whatever you know these are little little kids and do you, um, ma'am, know anyone we could get to take control of them? We really need to put them in a room, honestly, and throw away the key. This is a real problem. <laughs> to their great surprise, this medical doctor, famous all over the world, with additional degrees, worldwide fame, said, I'll do it. You What? <laughs> <laughs> they looked at each other like, um, there's no budget. I don't think you understand what we're talking about here. She said, no, I'll do it. I'll do it. I, I want to test my theories on neurotypical children. This seems like a good opportunity, but I want free reign. They're like, whatever you want, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you solve our problem. And um, it was kind of a win-win. On January 6, 1907, 36-year-old Maria Montessori opened up her first early childhood school named Casa dei Bambini, which is Children's House. Which is what? 
The first classroom that has P3, P4, and kindergarten age children in it is still called in a Montessori school, Children's House. But it was a deal. They could not believe their luck. They could not believe their luck. But little did they know that what happened in that little room in their low-income housing development would soon revolutionize the world. Maria Montessori has her children. She has her classroom. And now she is going to have her adventure. So over the course of a couple of years of running this program with a person that she hired who specifically and purposely was not a qualified teacher because Maria Montessori did not want any other you know, educational prejudices getting in the way of this experiment. So they observed the children. They let the children and their interests kind of lead how the class was going to be. And ultimately, the following principles kind of coalesced. And this, although there are some um, modifications over the years, this basically laid out the way that the Montessori schools are run even today. So there's five main principles that Maria Montessori came up with during this experience. The absorbent mind, which just means children are born ready for learning. We all know that if you have a child, all they want to do is touch things, put things in their mouths. Mm -hmm. That's how babies learn, by touch. There is a sensitive period for many skills. And if you don't learn them during those time frames, it's harder to learn them. We all know that too. Walking, talking, reading, writing, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Riding a bike. <laughs> <laughs> Children will auto-educate themselves. Something else we know if anybody here has dinosaur experts in the house. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yes. If, you, if they get a thing. Oh, oh, I was with my friend Micah, who's a dinosaur expert at six yesterday. And she was telling me about all kinds of things. It was lovely. My favorite one, respect for the child, which was very, very rare during Maria Montessori's time, the children should be seen and not heard time. It boils down to trusting the children, I think. And a part of that was her philosophy of never interrupting a concentrating child. Because to her, children's playtime is their work. That's that's what they are put on this earth to do. And if they're concentrating, then they're really involved in something serious. So you shouldn't interrupt them. And that is a good principle that I try to follow as far as I can. You, know, <laughs> you have to be places, you have to do stuff. But for the most part, I actually did follow that at home too. Actually, it helps develop the adult's patience. <laughs> and uh, last but not least is children learn best in a prepared environment. And so that just means the way the classroom is set up. And it is a prepared environment. And I wish that somebody, when I was looking for preschools for my kids, had told it to me the way you just did. Told me what Montessori schools were, really were. Instead of saying, oh, the kids just lead, which they do, but there's more to it. There's all kinds of things. It's whatever the kids want to do. It just sounded chaotic, but now, you know, through the time knowing you and through this, I realized that it's organized chaos, 
and there's a method to all of it. And I'm really sorry that I didn't. I There's no Montessori schools near me, but it's a great opportunity for kids. And I wish that my kids had had that. The prepared environment is not just the physical objects, but it's kind of the spirit of the room. The thing that you noticed was the freedom, the freedom the children have to move around, which I found was critical for my boy because our other option was the French immersion school, which teaches in the French, i.e. old Italian method where (laughs) you sit, teacher talks, nobody moves from the seat, the end. And my child, I'd have to go to the trophy store and get him a plaque and put it on the bench outside the principal's door because there's no way <laughs> he would no. have been still. No. So no. this I thought was good for him. But what it is, it's you're free to do things. You're also free from interference. You are taught to never interfere with anybody else's work. If they are concentrating, you are not to interrupt them. Well, that leads to a lot of quiet in the room. Um, if everyone else is working then Mm -hmm. you don't have any compatriots in your cockamamie mayhem. So they get these little rugs and that's their workspace. And you are to respect the rug. Nobody walks on a rug because that's interfering with people's workspace. So they don't. They really don't. It's an amazing thing. So it, it... It's very cool. And then structure and order kind of go along with that. Okay, yes, you're free to follow your dreams in here, but there are rules. You know, you must put all your things back. You must put them in order. So for the next guy, it's respect. Respect for the room, respect for the process, respect for your friends. But the classes are very beautiful. You're invited to come in. You're invited to explore. There's always paintings hung at child level. In the classroom, there's live plants, there's flower arrangements in the room, full of color, it's full of nature, and also child-sized things that are real. To us, it seems like a no-brainer at this point. Every kid's classroom has child-sized furniture in it, but back then, that wasn't the case. Kids had to sit on big people's furniture instead of ones that were geared towards them. There's so many things that Maria Montessori enacted that are in just about every classroom you go into, even the ones that aren't Montessori, which most of them aren't. I love that, though. Like the moving around thing. My kids did that in preschool. They did a lot of these things, but it wasn't a Montessori school. So it lacked a lot of the, you know, the philosophies behind it. I liked but was blown away. (laughs) When you take the tour, your child starts at three. Mm -hmm. So if you come in, (laughs) everybody has plastic cups and plates at your house when you have little children. You just do. Mm -hmm. Because you do not want broken glass everywhere. But if you go into a Montessori classroom, you will find small size, real china plates. You will find small size, real glass cups. You will find paring knives that are sharp. (laughs) And there is a little bit of panic you have to overcome. But the principle of Montessori is they need to be trusted. They'll, they're taught to use these things and they're taught to use them properly and they concentrate and they pay attention and this is their work and they must learn to do it. And I'm like, what happens if they drop a glass? And she says, gravity takes hold and it breaks. What a lovely scientific experiment that is. <laughs> and they go and get the dustpan and clean it up. And that's another lesson. And I'm just thinking, oh, the power of positivity in here is epic. Uh And honestly, we never had an incident with breaking. We did have an incident with a garbanzo bean up the nose, but that could happen to anyone. (laughs) It did. Ours was an uh, eraser, a pencil eraser. (laughs) Uh, Well, and another thing I really like about uh, the Montessori environment, mixed age classrooms, everyone says there's only one adult. How are you running this three-ring circus? And in fact, the adult is not the only educator in the room. If you are a five-year-old and a three-year-old 
needs help with his lesson or help carrying his object, you're right there. You've had this lesson. You know all about it. And you can help a guy out. And I really think that is why my son is so kind and gentle today with younger children. In his school, which went up to sixth grade, as you get older, you have more responsibility for everyone younger than you. And so by the time you're in sixth grade, you really feel like, woof, I have 189 younger brothers and sisters. (laughs) I was going to say that. My kids got that because I gave them siblings. But yeah, I love that. I can link people up to a video about the Montessori programs and you can be in the classroom and see all this stuff that Beckett's talking about. You're right. It's beautiful. That's a great way to put it. And I will post, I swear I'm going to get back on this Pinterest thing because Pinterest (laughs) is still making me mad and they still have made it very, very hard to use. However, I would like to post pictures of iconic Montessori materials like the pink tower where Mm -hmm. it looks like nothing more than a child stacking blocks. But what do they learn? They learn size. They learn shape. They learn balance. And secretly, they're learning the (laughs) decimal system because they're all in powers of 10. Mm-hmm. I know. It's so crazy. The same thing with the thousand bead string, which was the most popular thing in that classroom. People would run in and get to the thousand bead string. You go out <laughs> in the hallway and you string it out. And man, that thing is feet long. And you count by 10, a thousand by tens. And kids <laughs> ached to do it and <laughs> were excited to do it and would spend hours out there counting that bead string and no one interrupted them. And things like that, Maria Montessori was able to develop them because she's watching Watching these kids. She was watching a little girl at one point and she was doing division. So she divided five into 10, let's say. But then the girl took it even farther and she added another zero. So she was doing five into 100 and then another. So she ended up having this entire string of super long division that went from the floor to the ceiling when they took all the pieces of paper and lined them up. And that's how Maria Montessori came about with her Uh, materials back in the early 1900s that are still in the classrooms today, almost identical materials. What stays around that long? I cannot remember what project it is, but there is some project you do in lower elementary. Oh, Montessori parents chime in where it takes up so much space on the floor that his school actually you just go into the office and book the auditorium and you had to use the whole stage. (laughs) for whatever project this was. And it was something like that, some kind of math problem that took up a lot of room. Mm -hmm. So they'll just, I mean, how awesome is that? That a child will go to the office, the principal's office, the source of fear for most elementary schools and petition to do a math problem. (laughs) They take their ownership of this classroom very quickly. In this, her first school in Casa de Bambini, number one, because there was quickly a number two and then more and more. But in her first school, some VIPs came to town and they wanted to see the Montessori school. They wanted to see the room and it was locked. But there were some kids playing nearby that went there and they said, let me get the key. We'll take you in. So they got the key, opened the place up, got out their materials and set to work because they knew what to do and that the VIPs wanted to see them in action without any teacher in the room. How cool is that? As far as Maria Montessori was concerned, the ideal situation in a Montessori classroom is all the children concentrating, acting as if the adult in the room did not exist. And the adult was the observer of everyone's development and Mm -hmm. could direct people that were ready for the next step and give them a lesson. 
or whatever. And, and that was the ideal. So those kids, oh, it just kills me. And then they started kind of learning things by accident. They had got all this foundation knowledge. And in Italy, you weren't taught to read and write until you went to school at seven. And the children have been playing with these wooden blocks shaped like letters and suddenly started to write. And this whole little classroom, they were up on the the roof terrace and they had chalk and they were kind of messing around. And one of the little kids said to Maria Montessori, I can write, I can write. And he sure enough started writing all these words. Mm -hmm. I mean, they might not have been spelled correctly. They were phonetically spelled most of the time, (laughs) which is perfectly fine. But he would write all over. I would write, I would write too. And soon 20, 30 kids were all writing all over the slate roof. And they went home and wrote all over every scrap of paper in the house. And the mothers had to go out and get notebooks for these children. Otherwise, they'd be writing on the walls. And everyone was so excited. And everyone was four and five years old. Mm -hmm. And that is another story that blew people away. And this is why... Montessori started to take off all over the world. And she published, <laughs> I, can I say this in one breath? I just don't know. <laughs> she don't published know. her findings in a book called Il Metodo della Pedagogia Scientifico Applicato all'Educazione Infantile nella Casa dei Bambini. <laughs> Which by the time it got to us here in America was called the Montessori Method. <laughs> Because they learned their lesson with branding. You know, kindergarten had the same problem. Yeah, obviously. That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, it took the world by storm. Training programs sprung up everywhere. Schools all over the world. England, Argentina, Paris, Boston, New York. Maria Montessori was back out on the lecture circuit firing people up. Like in the old days, but on a new topic. I'm not surprised if people just ran straight out of there to the real estate office to sign them a lease for a school. (laughs) She was so inspirational. People would like cry while they were sitting there. Her work was immediately translated into 20 languages. The U.S. edition sold out in a matter of three days. Mm -hmm. It was the hottest thing around. It absolutely was. This is not a warehouse to keep them out from underfoot, but a true education for the youth. It wasn't all sunshine and roses for Maria. Yes, she had been working her entire life to create this program, and she didn't even know it. Just like when the kids are learning, they don't know that they're learning until they're there. But every step of Maria's life brought her here. Unfortunately, about a year after her first book came out, Her biggest cheerleader, her mother, passed away. Crushing. But a switch flipped inside of Maria, and she went to go visit her then 15-year-old nephew, Mario, at his boarding school. And he kind of took charge of the situation, and he said, you know what? I know you're my mother. And at that point, she said, okay, come with me. Get in the car. I mean, almost exactly like that. Get in the car. And they were together for the rest of her life. He traveled with her and nobody except the people that were closest to her knew that Mario was her son. Otherwise, he was her nephew, which is kind of a trick for an only child. (laughs) Well, she began training teachers. Over 100 from all countries in the globe came eagerly to see how this is done. And they called it a pilgrimage. So (laughs) coming to worship at the shrine of Montessori. Interesting. I've noticed it becomes a little bit of a... um, I don't even want to say a faith, but a definitely a fascination. The purity of the Montessori method often became its downfall. Fights over who was the keeper of the flame. 
In fact, uh, during her first trip to America, her greatest backer and someone who I don't think was out to, quote, get her or whatever, tried to make a business out of her, out of her materials, which she didn't get a piece of, out of schools, out of training courses. And Maria found herself in a constant battle to keep her legacy from being chipped away. It reminds me of Florence Nightingale there in the Crimea trying to prevent other nurses from ruining her reputation. Mm-hmm. It wasn't necessarily that she was so protective of of her thing, but just other people using her name and not understanding it was really bothering her. Right. To know how to use the blocks is one thing. To know why you're using the blocks is something you have to be trained in. And Maria Montessori wanted that control so that people knew why they were doing what they were doing. That's why she set up you know, her training sessions. She had a six-month course of lectures and lessons, philosophy and sociology. And it's not just you know, how to play in the classroom. It's all this other background stuff that she wanted all of her teachers all across the world to be trained in. And people are like, yeah, that's really cool, but let me do this instead under her name. Still goes on now. I'm here to tell you. A lot of schools that say they're Montessori, not uh-huh. so much. Yeah. I know. I tried to find one around me. And I know that there's a lot of Montessori schools here, but there's none that are accredited. Yeah. So, you know, she wouldn't necessarily be that happy about that, I'm sure. Mm-mm. No, I don't think she would. To handle the philosophical crises that kept following the Montessori method all over the world, Maria and Mario created the Association Montessori International, or AMI, that is still the main governing body of Montessori education even today. Well, Uh, She does come back to America one more time for a very cool reason, at least as far as I'm concerned, to be part of an exhibit at the 1915 Panama Pacific International Exposition in San Francisco. Yes. What a strange concept. What do you want me to do? Well, there's a conference where 15,000 teachers are going to be. Okay, I can give another lecture. But here is the novel concept. Here is the new thing we want. We are going to make a glass-walled classroom with bleachers outside. And we're going to run a class in there for four months. And she, rather than be horrified, was very intrigued by the concept. And rather than select children from Montessori schools, I honestly, I think I would do that. I'd be like, give me your, best, give me your best kids. <laughs> like, <laughs> No, she specified that any child in this school could not have been to any school before. And 2,000 people applied to have their children come to this school. In the public eye, there were bleachers outside. (laughs) Well, Maria was a scientist. I mean, she came to her program because she studied like a scientist. She came up with everything from the scientific lens. So, yeah, of course she doesn't want kids that are already trained in the Montessori method. Come on. Where's the science in that? (laughs) Too scary. Well, the class was (laughs) held from 9 to 12. And then after that, the kids served themselves the lunch. And people loved that part the best. They would hurry and go get something from one of the vendors and run back and their friend saved a seat on the bleachers. Then they'd watch these little tiny kids, perfect manners, serving each other, carrying giant soup tureens. It was just amazing. (laughs) And these kids did not often break the fourth wall. I mean, they literally didn't break it. It was glass, but they didn't look out (laughs) at the audience very much at all. Most of the time, they were really, really deep into concentration. 
And Maria only was the directress of this particular school occasionally. She had a very trusted deputy named Helen Parkhurst, kind of one of her inner circle. She had a few deputies that she really, really trusted, and this lady was one of them. And that lady ran it most of the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she was really nervous when she looked up and saw Maria Montessori in the bleachers, like, cool crap. But she held it all together. <laughs> While she was in the United States with Mario, of course, he got married and he and his wife set up a school, a Montessori school in Hollywood that was attended by stars, children, including the Fairbanks Pickford kids. I don't know what episode that is, but I don't either. <laughs> we covered her on the show. That's right. Well, the death of Maria Montessori's father brought her back to Italy and her departure from America and the Montessori schools of America kind of left a vacuum and it devolved into infighting and drama and... Uh, America's obsession with Montessori method died out for many decades. It was kind of like kindergarten v. Montessori in America. And their strongest advocate for Montessori education has left the building. And it really turned very ugly. The problems in America were echoed in a very similar rise and fall in London, a giant waterfall of infighting afterward. And I just really point again to what might happen to a church when there's a schism and, and a little matter of of dogma must be nailed down or not, you know, accepted or whatever. And so people leave. And that's what was happening over and over again with the, the Montessori method. And I'm kind of sorry to see that. She moved to Barcelona during World War One at the request of the local government. This is where her grandchildren ended up being. This, this is where her home was. So this is her home base. For 20 years. So she's able to be there with Mario and his wife and her grandchildren in Barcelona. Even though the pattern of her life was lectures, hold training in countries all over Europe, speeches, conferences, dinner parties, networking, publication. (laughs) She was very, very busy. She was very, very desired in many companies. But nevertheless, she would come home and Mario said to the interviewer, and you wouldn't believe it, but she got right on the floor and started playing with my children. And she thought that was her most important work. Why wouldn't somebody believe that? That's what she does. Well, but I think they're just thinking she's a noted figure. She's so important. Yeah. She is, um, she's this, she's that. But it comes down to the fact that she is here for the children. She mm-hmm. is not here to hear you talk about this or the thing or theories or, you know, she's like, look, I've observed. This is what the children have told me, kind of. Mm-hmm. So, so similar to the government of Barcelona, the education minister back home in Italy, under Italy's new ruler, who should sound familiar, Benito Mussolini, thought that it was a shame, wasn't it, that other countries were benefiting from Italy's own homegrown educational system, Miss Montessori. And Signor Mussolini, after study of its contents, this is actually a press release, states that the Montessori principle is established and those who fail to understand it are only displaying their ignorance. When Mussolini came to power, it was under a lot of questions. You know, it was a the election was not exactly on the up and up, but his whole premise was he wanted to improve Italy. Of course, Italians want their country improved. They'd seen it destroyed in World War One. So, Mussolini started off an awful lot like a guy in Germany named Hitler, 
trying to improve the life of Italians. So he'd get more people that said, yes, this is great. Let's keep doing this to our country. So having a good education system was important to Mussolini. For about 10 years, Maria was back in Italy setting up schools. And enthusiastically, she set up over 70 schools. And they were all working perfectly until a certain point when she figured out that Mussolini was kind of playing a long game and that he was using her experience and her fame and her credibility to give that to his government. And meanwhile, he was just becoming even a more powerful fascist. So there should have been a red flag, or maybe there was, and there were other factors at work. Two years in the rule came down that all classes must open with the fascist song Giovanetta, which is, okay, you're not really supposed to like reach your finger down here and tell us what song to play first. Seems a little sus. Mm-hmm. And so she began to experience some difficulties obeying, which you know she's not that good at obeying. And also, she did not see any virtue in obeying, not even for children. Is that where I get it? I don't know. I don't see any virtue of people obeying either, even children. So um, obviously, with Mussolini, you're going to have a big problem. And one of the major problems she had was that Mussolini required all teachers to state a loyalty oath to the country. And she was not going to let her teachers do that. And here is the loyalty oath that they were supposed to start saying in 1931. I swear fidelity to the king, to his royal successors, and to the fascist regime. And I swear to respect the National Fascist Party's statutes and the other laws of the state, and to fulfill my teachers and all academic duties with the aim of preparing industrious and righteous citizens, patriotic and devoted to the fascist regime. I swear not to be or ever become a member of organizations or parties whose activities are incompatible with my official duties. Kind of chilling. Kind of not good. And the philosophy of Maria Montessori using children as a means to world peace and (laughs) the obvious opposite goals of Mussolini, they did not see eye to eye. And in a one-day period, Mussolini ordered every single Montessori school in Italy closed. And thus it was done. Meanwhile, in Germany, the same thing was happening when Hitler instructed that all the Montessori schools there also be closed. One of the problems with the Montessori schools, we did talk about this a little in the Anne Frank episode. Anne Frank is a famous uh, alumna of Montessori education. He, at one point, required all Jewish students to be eliminated um, from schools and for certain materials to be taken out of school. And the Montessori schools did not do either of those things and were therefore closed. They weren't going to police the out-of-school activities of their teachers, and they were not going to expel the Jewish students. So they had to go. And Hitler and Mussolini certainly did not want free-thinking citizens anyway. So this whole system was very incompatible with the Montessori way, really, Mm -hmm. if you think about it. And I am cracking up about the obedience thing still. I'm just, (laughs) I have to tell a story of something that happened when authority tried to put their foot on the neck of Montessori children. At my son's school, when he went to Montessori Elementary School, um, (laughs) I have to tell you the story of the saga of the chocolate milk. Okay, the principal decided that she was going to eliminate chocolate milk from the lunch program. And there was disquiet among the populace. (laughs) 
they didn't want chocolate milk taken out. And she said, it's not good for you. I read this article and she was trying to be a good Montessori teacher. This is why we're doing this. Your bodies are this and it's not healthy and the sugar content and blah, blah, blah. And several of the upper L students, this is fourth, fifth and sixth grade, got together in a committee at recess and they developed a strategy. And they looked up data and they discovered that Manchester United, the most famous soccer team in the world, used chocolate milk as a training beverage. <laughs> they looked up the medical benefits of, of protein replacement for this and for that and got all this medical details. And then they went further and they took a survey. They drew up a survey and they went from class to class and asked to speak to the class and made appointments with certain teachers and librarians. And they made their presentation. And they asked the question, if your choice is between white milk and no milk, which do you choose? And so some kind of data point emerged that more kids would drink no milk than drink white milk. Then they added a question, which would you drink, chocolate milk, white milk, or no milk? And then chocolate milk came out on top. So therefore, they compiled their data, made an appointment with the principal and went in and said, you are depriving 78% of the student body of this much protein and this much health giving properties and blah, 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 blah. And they really had all their crap together. Little kids who couldn't write their names yet had given an X and the teacher signed as her witness, you know, for the, and they had got all their ducks in a row and the principal just laughed and called down to the district and got the chocolate milk back because what can you do? With that kind of organized and intelligent resistance, even if some of their logic might have been flawed, you cannot complain when all the education you've been giving these kids coalesces into one big project like this that uh -huh. encompassed the whole school from the P3s to the sixth graders. And I love that story. So Hitler and Mussolini are not going to like these kind of citizens that ask why and complain when there's a regulation they don't like. So the surprise level I have for them closing is not great. No. <laughs> So Maria moved back to Spain, but in Spain, the Spanish Civil War had led to the rise of Francesco Franco, yet another man who wants to control everything. So it's 1936. Maria sees the writing on the wall and she flees Spain and goes to England and then on to Amsterdam. The Netherlands, given the fact that you and I have all talked about Anne Frank, might not have been the best refuge. Mm -mm. But it all ended up not being a problem because there was a different problem. <laughs> uh, I hate to make light of this, but I'm like, oh, of course there was. So Maria and her son decided to go as they go all the time to countries around the world to do teacher training speeches teacher training, speeches, set up schools. You know, that's what they were going to do for three months in India. Brand new market. Gandhi himself had asked Maria to come and set up some schools in his country. That's a pretty important person to give you an invitation that you really can't turn down. I agree. And why would she? She was very enthusiastic about her methods and her programs and couldn't wait to share it with them. So she and Mario took off to India for what they thought was going to be three months. Three-hour cruise. <laughs> I think it's three-hour tour because I'm that oh, kind of nerd. You are. That's right. <laughs> well, it turned into a little bit more than that because war broke out in the tiny window in which they were there. And Mario and Maria were imprisoned as members of an enemy nation. You see, they were from Italy, they were Italian citizens, and India at the time was still part of Britain, and they were enemy 
citizens. So they, Mario was sent to an internment camp and Maria, I think due to her age and also a certain manner of respect for lady persons, was simply put under house arrest. They lived like that for two months when Mario was released to become Maria's 70th birthday present. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Well, that's something. Well, while she was there, she thought she might as well put her intellect to use. And she started work on her further educational programs. You see, her school so far had only gone up to the age of six. And she wanted to work on the six to 12-year-olds and study what made them tick and how their brains differed from the younger children. And so she did not waste her time there in any way. But the time stretched and stretched. They ended up being under house arrest for, well, or at least country arrest for a matter of seven years. They could not leave India. And you think you're just leaving for three months. I mean, you do pack a lot of clothes. It's not like Ginger on Gilligan's Island ended up with a lot of clothes. And I don't know how that happened. Mrs. Howell had suitcases and suitcases. It's because they didn't travel light. (laughs) Anyway, so they finally were allowed to return to the Netherlands and immediately she is back in the game giving speeches to UNESCO about education and peace. As someone who's just been interned as a, um, I I don't know about a prisoner of war, but an enemy citizen, she had a lot to say about (laughs) how uncool that was. (laughs) While she was in India, this is one of the things that she said. The adult must understand the meaning of the moral defenses of humanity, not the armed defenses of nation. He must realize that the child will be the creator of new world peace. In a stable environment, the child reveals unexpected social characteristics. The quality he shows will be the salvation of the world, showing us the road to peace. From one war to another, this is what she's realized, that her programs, yes, they teach kids to read and write. They make them better citizens of their communities, but they will also make them better citizens of the world. So Maria Montessori, as a thank you from the world at large for all the work that she had done for the world's children, was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in 1949, 1950, and 1951. And all three times she did not actually receive the Nobel Prize. There was a man who was kind of the key negotiator for Palestine. Right after the war, there was another guy that helped provide food aid during the war and another guy that was key in smoothing relations between Germany and the rest of Europe. So I can see why that was on the tip of everyone's (laughs) tongue, you know, and, and the front of their mind. So I guess I can't fault them. Those are pretty big deals. But nevertheless, they wanted to recognize her and they really did keep trying. But unfortunately, they couldn't try for a fourth time. Because the year after that last nomination, right after her speech at the Ninth International Montessori Congress, you should know that they are about to have the 29th in Thailand this year. She died right after that on May 6th, 1952 in the Netherlands. She had been sitting with some friends in a garden talking about if she was healthy enough to go to Africa. She wanted to go so badly. And her friends were like, I don't think so. Getting older, she's 81 years old. And she looked at Mario and she said, am I no longer of any use to them? And then an hour later, she had a cerebral hemorrhage and died right there in the garden. Maria had stated that she wanted to be buried wherever she died. 
So she was buried in Amsterdam in a Roman Catholic cemetery. But later, a plaque was added to her parents' grave in Rome, and it says, Maria Montessori rests far from her own beloved country, far from her dear ones buried here, at her wish as a testimony to the universality of the work which made her a citizen of the world. And her headstone where she is buried in Nordvik, Netherlands. Her tombstone says, I beg the dear, all-powerful children to join me in creating peace in man and in the world. Upon her death, in her will, she left everything to Mario. And in her will, she finally told the world that he was her son. She acknowledged him as her son. You know, all this time, the only people that knew were the people that were closest to her knew that Mario was her son and she acknowledged it. And he took over her work for her and did it until his own death in 1982. Anyone has used every minute of the life she had. <laughs> no kidding. It is this person. I don't think there was a wasted minute in there. Yeah, man. And she impacted so many lives all over the world. And even today, I mean, she has reached her delightfully beautiful <laughs> fingers and um, mind into my own personal life. I went to Montessori preschool. My son went to Montessori school until sixth grade. And I really think it helped to shape his character. So more than almost any other subject we've covered, at least recently, this subject has directly impacted my own life. Yeah, you've wanted to cover Maria Montessori for uh, probably as long as I've known you. <laughs> yeah. So this was an episode that you were really looking forward to. Now it's time for media. And as usual, we'll start with the books. But as the not usual, why don't we go ahead and start with the one delightful children's book? There is. We love every single book in this series. It's Little People, Big Dreams. Maria Montessori is written by Isabella Sanchez Vergara and illustrated by Raquel Martin. If you can find any book in this series, grab it and give it to your favorite children. They have books that are board books. They have ones that are a little bit longer. They have box sets. They even have a couple that are paper dolls, biographies of women that have paper dolls. And the two that they chose, Emmeline Pankhurst, and Marie Curie. I have been giving board books instead of cards for years. Mm, great. Yeah, I think they stick around longer and, and you know, they don't end up in the recycling box immediately and that kind of thing. So no, I love giving books. Just even if you're just going over to a kid's house. My little friend, Micah, I love this kid so much. I give her books all the time about women that we talk about. She probably loves it. She does. Absolutely. She, I gave her some that, that are a little too old for her, but I told her mom, I'm like, just put this on the shelf. She'll like it when she gets a little bit older. Phyllis Wheatley, I gave her. Mm -hmm. Maria Montessori would approve, enlightening the minds of the younger generation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, speaking of Maria Montessori, again, uh, a biography that I liked was Maria Montessori, Teacher of Teachers by Marie Shepard. I don't know. I hope we focused enough on the fact that one of her major contributions was teaching the hundreds and thousands of teachers who taught the children of the world. So that is an aspect that um, this book focuses on. Also, mm -hmm. the book, The Green Book, the book you get with purchase when you buy a Montessori <laughs> education, <laughs> is Maria Montessori, Her Life and Work by E.M. Standing, who was, in fact, a colleague of Maria Montessori's during her lifetime. And she actually read part of this book um, before she died. It was published in 1957. Uh, she edited a little bit for historical accuracy, but she really praised it. She thought it was a wonderful biography of her. 
And also, last but not least, in fact, the one that I would recommend the most is Maria Montessori, A Biography by Rita Kramer. This is the most recent one. It's very in-depth. It goes into a lot of the stories that are told over and over, especially in that green book, and fact checks them. There's some things that she myth busts, and there's some things that she supports. So I would pick this book if I was going to read one. There is a movie, and it is in Italian. Now, I watched a couple of scenes that I could perfectly well understand because there's no dialogue. (laughs) Um, So that's good. Um, She obviously is coming to visit Mario and says she loves him or whatever. And then his wet nurse just heists the baby and sits down and says the baby needs feeding, madam, or whatever, and is totally distasteful and turns her back. And Maria is sad. So that's one of the scenes I saw. It's very easy to follow. But there is a way to get the English subtitles on on this YouTube video. It's an entire movie. And it gives you a way to put on the English subtitles. And I, for the life of me, can't figure it out. So maybe you can. And if so, we'll provide you with a link. And since we're talking about movies, I did get a documentary from the library. It was from 2004, Maria Montessori, Her Life and Legacy. It's about 35 minutes. I got it as an electronic resource, so you can probably get it at your library. This is a video that I was talking about that you can see inside a classroom and watch the kids um, use the materials. It's hosted by a Montessori Method teacher. So it's a woman who teaches the teachers. And there's some uh, video of her in that setting as well. It's a really quick look at what a Montessori school feels like. You get that just calm way that the Montessori teachers talk that I wish that I had just a little teeny tiny bit of. I think one of the most shocking things that I found out was that most Montessori schools that say Montessori aren't completely Montessori. They're not Montessori affiliated. In the United States, there's about 4,000 Montessori schools that have Montessori in their title. Of those, only about 1,100 are members of the American Montessori Society, and only about 200 are American Montessori Society accredited, and not very many more, still in the low 200s, are recognized by Association Montessori International, you know, the worldwide governing body that was formed by Maria Montessori herself. So that kind of surprised me. We'll give you some links on how to find a real Montessori school near you. That doesn't mean that schools that have Montessori in their title don't use the materials, that they don't know how to use the materials. That's not what I'm saying at all. But they're not pure Montessori schools, like the one that Beckett sent hers on to. We'll give you a link of how to find a Montessori school near you and an article on how to tell the difference between the, quote, real Montessori schools and the ones that are just using her name. There's also a really cute video that I'll put in the show notes. It's one of those drawing ones. I know there's a technical name for it. I don't know what that is. But it's a hand-drawn video telling the difference between conventional education and Montessori education. It's just, (laughs) it was the first thing that I looked at. It was like, I thought of it as kind of like Montessori for dummies, and I really, really appreciated it. Speaking of the association Montessori Internationale, they are headquartered in Amsterdam in the last house that Maria lived in. And if you're in Amsterdam, you can contact them and go in and visit Maria's study. So you can go in and stand in Maria Montessori's study and talk to, with people from Association Montessori International, which is really cool. So we'll give you a link to that, too. So I went back to Pinterest and I do have a board up. <laughs> as of this recording. And on it will be some of the materials that the children work with, 
uh, videos of classrooms, lots of pictures of Maria Montessori herself. So a lot of the things that I could direct you to, I have collected all in one place and they will take you to their original links. It's very clever how they do that. Also, there is a video series on Netflix that's not directly related to Montessori. In fact, it covers children that are infants to two years old, and it's called The Beginning of Life. It's got eight episodes, and it talks about the development of babies as natural scientists and um, how their brains work. So I just was fascinated by that, and I think Maria Montessori would have liked that sort of video. So I am linking you to that. And that's all I have. And in closing, a short quote from Maria Montessori herself. She said this often to reporters and visitors. It's kind of ironic, actually, now that we've been talking about her for an hour and a half. But she said, don't look at me. Look at the way I'm pointing. And she would open her arms and indicate all the children, not only in the room, but in the world. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to check out the Pinterest board for this episode. At last, I feel like there should be trumpets. The music in the middle is the menuetto from the Grand Duetto Concertante by Mauro Giuliani. And the end song is Universe Acceptable by Ash Ganley. And I thought these lyrics were particularly apt. The day that you were born, you were given everything you needed to carry on. Holy moly, his gravelly voice is great. I just love it. See you next time. It came to pass like a summer's day. Your life and lost your faith. You needed to believe in something that your eyes had never seen. And now you found that you can't find the answers to the questions that you had in mind. It's like a dial tone, no one's on the line, and now you feel.
an explanation for the mystery. Explanation for the mystery.